Welcome to the listener's commentary on the New Testament. Your guide is pastor and theologian Dr. John Whitaker, and the heart behind these studies is to help you better understand the text of Scripture so you can more fully live it out. It's all about helping you learn and live the Bible. Here is the book of 1 Peter. All right, my name is John Whitaker, and I want to welcome you to the listener's commentary on the book of First Peter. And in this recording, we're going to look at the backstory to that book. And the reason for that is because, like many of the New Testament books, First Peter was originally a letter written to real Christians living in real places, addressing real issues of their time. And in any written correspondence or spoken correspondence, whatever it is, there's a backstory, there's a relationship, and there's things going on that inform what's being talked about in that letter. And such is the case with 1 Peter. And so in this recording, we want to look at the backstory to 1 Peter so that when we walk through the text together, we can hear what Peter is saying in the context of the situation that lies behind the letter. And so for 1 Peter, what is that situation? Well, it's the mid-60s AD, sometime around 65 or 66, maybe 67 AD. And the Roman emperor is Nero. And you've probably heard some reports of Nero's rule and how awful it was. And such is the case. The first few years of his rule were pretty good. But the last handful of years leading up to the writing of 1 Peter, the mania had begun to control Nero's actions. One well-known example of that that likely actually affects the backstory of 1 Peter is the Great Fire of Rome that occurred in July of 64, just a year or two before this letter was written. And that fire destroyed much of the city of Rome, and there was actually some widespread speculation that Nero himself started the fire. He didn't particularly like some of the architecture and buildings in the city. He wanted to redesign some of that. He couldn't get the Senate on board with that. So burn down the city, and then you can rebuild it how you want. At least that was the speculation. Now, there's not a whole lot of evidence that such was actually the case, but there was widespread speculation to that effect, and in order to deflect blame from himself, Nero pinned the fire on the Christians in the city. Well, that led to widespread hostility, hatred, and even persecution of the Christians in and around the city of Rome. And as a result, Nero himself took up the mantle of persecuting these despised and despicable Christians. And so he began feeding them to wild beasts and clothing them in animal skins and having lions attack them. He began burning them alive at night to light his palace gardens. All sorts of awful stuff as a way to uh, basically show how awful the Christians were and deflect any blame from himself to uh, the Christians. Well, this didn't lead to state-sponsored widespread persecution throughout the empire, but it did contribute to a rising suspicion and distrust and a rising hostility towards Christians in various places around the empire. And one place where such increased uh, suspicion and hostility appeared was the region of Asia Minor, a region with deep, deep loyalties to Rome, a region where uh, even temples and worship to the emperor were well known. And it's to the Christians in Asia Minor that the letter of 1 Peter is sent. This letter is addressed to the Christians in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. 
And these are all Roman provinces in the larger region of Asia Minor. And Asia Minor is what is now modern-day Turkey. And from reading the letter, it's clear that the Christians in these regions are experiencing varying degrees of discrimination, marginalization, and social hardship because of their faith in Jesus. We don't know for sure how long there's been churches in these areas, but what's clear is these Christians are enduring a tough, tough slog at this point in time. They're being ridiculed, they're being slandered, they're being treated with hostility. Uh, Peter even describes what they're going through as a fiery ordeal. And so it is a tough time and a tough place to be a believer and a follower of Jesus. Now, to restate, it's not state-sponsored, empire-wide persecution, but growing dislike, growing suspicion that led to all sorts of social mistreatment. They're struggling. They're being marginalized, ostracized, insulted, threatened. Uh, Perhaps they've lost their job or they're not able to get a job because of their faith in Jesus. Perhaps they have their own business and now their business uh, has been kicked out of the, uh, the social guild that it was a part of. And so they're being ostracized for, from their business colleagues and now business is suffering and they're having a hard time making ends meet. Uh, perhaps uh, some people in the market won't sell food to them or goods to them or charge them higher prices. Maybe they wake up and they find the walls of their home graffitied with demeaning anti-Christian slurs. Perhaps non-Christian slave owners ruthlessly belittle, mock, and maybe even uh, beat their servants and their slaves or give them the worst jobs to do. Like We don't know exactly all that was going on, but it was that sort of thing that was happening where because of their faith... They were being, they were experiencing all sorts of social dislocation, social mistreatment, social pressure to conform, and they were suffering deeply as a result of that. And so, how should they respond? How should they treat the unbelievers? How should they conduct themselves in and around town and towards their neighbors and on the job? Well, the apostle Peter writes to them to speak to this very question. That's what 1 Peter is all about. So that's, that's in a lot of ways, the backstory. Now let's look at the details just to make sure we know some more about this letter. Who's the author? Well, it's Peter. He calls him that at the beginning of the letter in the traditional opening and introduction and greeting. He says it's Peter. Um, he says in chapter 5, verse 1, that he was an eyewitness of the sufferings of Christ. Uh, there was no doubt Uh, about this claim that Peter wrote this letter in the early church, the book was widely known, widely read, widely accepted. No questions because it came from Peter himself. Now, in modern times, there has been some doubt about Peter's authorship, but all of that doubt is of modern creation. And one of the main reasons for this doubt is because of For example, how good the Greek is and the assumption that Peter, as a Galilean Jewish fisherman, couldn't produce such good Greek, right? Like, well, I say to that, who knows? Now, I'm not the Greek expert that some people are, and so I haven't read enough Greek uh, manuscripts outside of the Bible to, to say this, but people say the Greek in 1 Peter is some of the best Greek in the entire New Testament. And that just, in their mind, is impossible for who Peter was in his background. 
That just is such a massive assumption why I assume that Peter couldn't produce such good Greek. Not only that, it's clear from the end of the letter that uh, Peter dictated the letter and Silas wrote it down. Maybe Silas was trained and had impressive Greek. Like This is a huge assumption to say, well, we know Peter couldn't have written it because the Greek is too good. So the fact is, is there's really no good reason to assume Peter didn't write it. And all of the evidence from the early church is that, in fact, he did write it. So the author of this letter is Peter. Who is Peter? Well, Peter's one of the most well-known people in the New Testament, isn't he? Peter was one of the original followers of Jesus who traveled with him. He camped out with him, watched and studied him for three years, and learned straight from Jesus' mouth. He's one of the original ones who saw Jesus die and then talked and ate with him after he'd been raised from the dead. Peter had been part of a family fishing business before meeting Jesus, along with his brother Andrew and his business partners, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, and all of them together became followers of Jesus. And he is the focal point of some of the key stories in the Gospels, the stories about Jesus. Uh, for example, when Jesus was walking on the water and Peter asks if he can come out and Jesus calls him out of the boat and Peter walks on water for a little bit until the waves get the best of him and he begins to sink. Or the story of the miraculous catch of fish with Peter falling on his knees before Jesus in the boat saying, I am a sinful man, depart from me, Lord. Some of these well-known stories, the transfiguration, Peter is there uh, on the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus uh, appears with Elijah and Moses having a conversation and his figure is uh, brightened up with bright white, right? Peter is known for denying Jesus three times. He is the focal point of some of the key stories in the Gospels. He's one of the key leaders in the early church and the main character in the first half of the book of Acts. The first 12 chapters mostly revolve around Peter and Peter's ministry and preaching and all that. In fact, at times, there's some similarities from the things that are said in Peter's preaching recorded in Acts and what's written here in 1 Peter. And there's some overlap there. And when Peter writes the letter of 1 Peter, it's been about 35 years since those early days, since Jesus' crucifixion, resurrection, and the early days of the church, as you find in Acts chapter 2. And now, in those 35 years, there's been little groups of followers of Jesus that have popped up all over the Mediterranean world. And one of the places where they have popped up is in these regions in what is now modern-day Turkey, or Asia Minor. And that leads us to the next bit of details. Who are the original recipients of this letter? Who's Peter writing to? And we have to remember, as I noted at the outset, that these are letters written to real Christians in a different time and in a different place. And, and so, though they are written for us, right, we refer to the Bible as the Word of God, and it has great benefit for us, it's not originally written to us. And so, there is an original audience. And who is the original audience of 1 Peter? Well, 1 Peter is addressed to the Christians spread about throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Get out a map, if you will, and look up those regions, and it covers a good chunk of what is now modern-day Turkey. And what's interesting about that is we have no record of Peter's connection with the churches in this area, so we don't know the nature of the relationship between Peter and these churches. Not only that, uh, 
Another interesting fact is, of all the New Testament letters, there is no other letter that is addressed to such a broad region as 1 Peter is. And so it is addressed to a huge region of Christians, uh, and it speaks to some sort of relationship between Peter and the churches in these areas. We just don't know when they got connected and what that relationship is. So this letter is addressed to a handful of churches scattered throughout modern-day Turkey. When is it written? Well, it's written, as I noted, probably around 65, 66, maybe as late as 67. And Peter is most likely writing from Rome, which he refers to by kind of the code word Babylon in 1 Peter 5.13. That was sort of a Jewish code word post the exile, right, for any kind of uh, empire that was anti the people of God. And so Peter seems to be writing from Rome, and Peter was in Rome in the mid-60s and was actually killed there for his faith in Jesus around 67 or 68. And this letter is written sometime during that period when Peter is in Rome before his death. And what was the purpose? What was the goal of writing to these Christians? Well, these Christians, as we noted, were suffering through all sorts of harassment, opposition, and mistreatment because of their faith in Jesus. Becoming a follower of Jesus made you a religious, cultural, and social misfit. Religions governed the annual calendar of the cities, all the pagan religions, and then the Jews had their own sort of ritual calendar. And if you were a part of the early church, you didn't really fit with the pagans and you didn't quite totally fit with the Jews. You were a complete misfit. Not only that, businesses had patron gods and patron goddesses with feasts and rituals held in their honor. And if you were now a follower of Jesus, you couldn't participate in those feasts and those rituals in good conscience, particularly if you had to offer incense or some offering to it. And so what would you do and how is that going to affect your business? Then, loyalty to the emperor and the empire was proclaimed through temples and worship and feasts in the emperor's honor. And oftentimes, there would be one or two of those feasts throughout a year, and you're, you were responsible to uh, participate with, again, uh, incense and a pledge of loyalty saying things like, uh, Kaiser Kyrios, Caesar is Lord. Well, if you're a Christian, you can't say that. Why? Because Jesus Kyrios, Jesus is Lord, Right. And so now you're viewed as almost a threat to social stability and to imperial peace and to uh, maybe treason to the empire as well. So virtually all of life was connected in some way to a god or to a goddess, to the emperor who was treated as a god. And now as a follower of Jesus, you couldn't and wouldn't participate. How could you conduct business? What about participating in the trade guild? And the trade guild wasn't just a business thing. It was a social thing. It was almost like your life insurance. And they'd pay for certain fees. And in lieu of your death, they would take care of your family. What about the theater? Could you go participate in the theater if there was going to be an offering that was done in honor of a god or a goddess before the show, right? Uh, 
And your conversion not only brought you into that situation, it brought you new ethical standards. Now that you've come to faith in Jesus, your ethics are different. And your ethics were viewed as weird by your former colleagues and friends, like your sexual purity and your sexual faithfulness to your spouse was looked on as odd or weird. Uh, Your uh, unwillingness to participate in the parties you used to to socialize at, or some of these sorts of things. You were just a complete social misfit. How should God's people in Christ live and act and interact in such a situation? How should they view themselves? How should they handle the harassment and even some of the difficulty, hardship, and suffering that comes about as a result? How should they interact with their neighbors and their colleagues in business, maybe even some of those who are treating them badly and speaking ill of them? Um, How should you live in such a way when you're viewed with just uh, with suspicion, maybe with hostility, or maybe just looked at as just odd and weird and your ideas are weird and like those are dangerous, weird, crazy ideas. How should you interact with the people who treat you this way? How should you live in town and conduct yourself in town in view of a situation? Well, that's the purpose of First Peter. And at the outset, let me just highlight a couple of words that are central to Peter's message in this letter. One of the words in Greek is anastrophe. It's a word that's hard to capture the full sense of it in English, and it's often just translated as behavior. But behavior for us oftentimes just refers to specific actions. And anastrophe includes specific actions, but it's bigger than that. It's the really the whole manner of your life, your lifestyle, the whole way your life is organized and carried out and conducted. So it includes specific actions, but it's broader than that to your whole way of life. So that's important. You'll, we'll see this word multiple times in the letter, and uh, oftentimes it's behavior, sometimes conduct. One place it's translated way of life. That's more the sense, way of life. So pay attention to that word. We'll note it as we go. Another important word that's really central to the message Peter is trying to communicate is kind of a compound word, almost perhaps Peter made up, who knows, but um, it's agatha poieo, which means a doer of good, uh, to do good. And it's oftentimes just translated to do right. But that doesn't have the same feel as doing good. Good uh, and right aren't uh, exactly the same things. You could do right without a good heart. To do good has more the sense of to be known as a doer of good in town and in your neighborhood with your neighbors. That includes right actions. And it also includes good actions, kind-hearted actions, generous actions. And so these two words together are really central, I think, to the message Peter wants to pass on in this letter. How do you live in such a situation where you're viewed as odd, where you're a cultural misfit, where your ethics and some of your life choices are viewed as weird, where you're harassed and treated with suspicion. How do you do that? Well, your way of life should uh, communicate goodness and wisdom and really should be beneficial to the people around you. And one other thing that Peter does as he 
gives this message to these followers of Jesus is he provides the example of Jesus and how Jesus faced suffering. He brings up that example over and over again to ground their approach to dealing with their difficulties in the very pattern and example of Jesus who suffered on their behalf. So that's where Peter is going in the letter. Now, this letter has really three big chunks. It's not the easiest letter to like truly outline and there's different approaches to doing it. But as I see it, there's really three big chunks to this letter. The first chunk is uh, 1-1 through 2-10. 1-1 through 2-10. And it really makes this point. Since we are God's people, we must live God-honoring lives. So that's the first chunk. Since we're God's people... We must live God-honoring lives. The second chunk, it goes from 2.11 through chapter 3, verse 12. And the point Peter makes there is, we must live God-honoring lives in our social relationships. And so he's going to deal with all the different kinds of social relationships and, and says, here's, here's the way we ought to carry that out. We must live God-honoring lives specifically in our social relationships. And then from chapter 3, verse 13 to the end of the letter, Peter makes this point. He says, we must live God-honoring lives by enduring hostility with faith, joy, and purity. Now, there's going to be stuff about enduring hostility in the first chunk and in the second chunk, but he deals with it in full force in that last chunk. And there's going to be stuff about our social relationships that show up in the first chunk and in the second, right? Like, so there's some overlap of content, but those really are the three main themes and the three main chunks as I see it in the letter. And so the overall message of this letter is that um, as followers of Jesus, here's how we can live God-honoring lives in a hostile world. That's what 1 Peter really is all about. And so with that, we are ready to jump into the letter together. I look forward to exploring this letter of 1 Peter together with you. And I want to say a special thanks to those of you who generously support this ministry so that the listener's commentary can be given away as a free resource to help people learn, live, and share the Bible all around the world. So thanks to those of you who faithfully support this ministry. God bless you for it. Let's get ready to jump into the letter of 1 Peter.